We turn together to Psalm 90, which undoubtedly is the oldest of the Psalms written by Moses. Now, as we read this Psalm, as you follow along in your Bible, you discover it has somewhat of a melancholy strain to it. This is not necessarily a psalm of praise or of buoyant joy. It's somewhat of a psalm of serious contemplation on life and on death. Psalm 90. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting thou art God. Thou turnest man to destruction, and sayest, Return, ye children of men. For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. Thou carriest them away as with a flood. They are like a sleep. In the morning they are like grass which groweth up. In the morning it flourisheth and groweth up. In the evening it is cut down and withereth. For we are consumed by thy anger and by thy wrath are we troubled. Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. For all our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told. The days of our years are threescore years and ten, and if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knoweth the power of thine anger? Even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? And let it repent thee concerning thy servants. O satisfy us early with thy mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days wherein thou hast afflicted us and the years wherein we have seen evil. Let thy work appear unto thy servants and thy glory unto their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. And establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands, establish thou it. Gracious Father, I pray that our consideration of this scripture tonight might be used of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. There are many lessons that we need to learn. And I pray, Father, that by the Holy Spirit, this passage from the Word of God might become very meaningful, very personal, 
I pray for that one who doesn't know Christ as Savior that he might come and trust him tonight. Oh God, this word came from your heart. I pray that you might now bring it afresh to our hearts to make us the kind of people we ought to be. For Jesus' sake, amen. This is the oldest of the Psalms, and it deals with the oldest question that men have faced. The question of, is there any meaning to life when after such a short time a person dies? Now, the answer you give to that question determines a great deal. Sigmund Freud, the great psychiatrist who is the founder of one school of modern psychiatry, said that the goal of all life is death. Now, what he meant by that was the way you live is determined by what you think about death. A very famous writer of essays, Montagnier, the great French writer, said a very profound thing in one of his essays. He said this, philosophy is no other thing than for a man to prepare himself to die. Now, other philosophers have made the same statement that the whole purpose for a philosophy of life is to get ready to die. In fact, if a person is not ready to die, he's not prepared to live. I just finished reading another biography of Samuel Johnson, the great dictionary writer and the great literary czar of England of a century ago. And that man was afraid to die. He wrote a book of prayers. I have the book in my library, but he was afraid to die. And he did everything he could to keep people from talking about death. William Randolph Hearst was this way. He owned this great castle out, e uh, out in the West Coast. He was a, a wealthy man from his newspaper empire, but he never permitted anyone to talk about death in his presence, which, of course, didn't stop death from coming. And so Psalm 90 is dealing with the oldest problem in the world. Why bother to live when someday you're going to die? That's what he's talking about. Now, if you and I understand Psalm 90, we'll be prepared to live and we'll be prepared to die. That's the beautiful thing about this psalm. If you understand what Moses, the lawgiver, is saying in this chapter, my friend, you'll be prepared to live and you'll be prepared to die. And perhaps the best way for us to approach this chapter is from three different viewpoints. First, I want to discuss the setting of this psalm. Now, if you don't understand the setting of the psalm, you'll miss the whole meaning of the psalm, which is our second viewpoint. And then thirdly, the living of the psalm. First of all, the setting of the psalm. As I read this psalm, did your heart say to you, that's not the way I live? Now, you're a Christian. I suppose most of us here tonight in this congregation are born-again people. We've trusted Jesus Christ. We don't consider verse 7 to be true of us. We are consumed by thy anger. By thy wrath are we troubled. Verse 9, all our days are passed away in thy wrath. Do you feel like that when you live? I don't. I don't feel that way at all. When I get up tomorrow morning, I don't look up and say, Oh, God is angry at me. Oh, what a miserable day this is going to be. 
You don't talk. I hope you don't talk like that. I think most of us uh, face the day and say, my father is watching over me. And there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. That's the kind of approach you take to life, isn't it? I think it is. Well, then what's this all about? This psalm was written by Moses as a response to a failure. You remember when God used Moses to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? And he led them, and they got away from Egypt, and they came ultimately to that key place on God's map, Kadesh Barnea. Kadesh Barnea was to be the gateway into the promised land. God brought them out that he might bring them in. And so ultimately they got to Kadesh Barnea. And at Kadesh Barnea, they said, you know, we better not go in and, and uh, take this land. We can't do it. Let's send some spies in. And so 12 men were sent in to spy out the land. They spent 40 days spying out the land, came back and said, you know, it's just like the Lord told us. Big surprise. It's exactly what God said. It's a land of milk and honey. It's a land that's marvelous, but... The people are giants and the cities are walled up to the heavens and will never be able to make it. And two men, Caleb and Joshua, said, we can do it with God's help. God brought us this far. He'll take us through. Moses and Caleb and Joshua said, let's go. But the majority said, no, we can't do it. Consequently, God judged them. You'll find the record in Numbers chapter 14. It might be good for us to read some of this. Numbers chapter 14, beginning at about verse 26. And the Lord spoke unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who murmur against me? I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel, which they murmur against me. Say unto them, as truly as I live, saith the Lord, as ye have spoken in mine ears, so will I do to you. Your carcasses. Now, you don't talk about a human body that way. A, a horse has a carcass. The Lord is saying to them, I can't even talk to you like, like people. I've got to talk to you like animals. Your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness. And all who were numbered of you, according to your whole number, from twenty years old and upward, who have murmured against me, doubtless ye shall not come into the land concerning which I swore to make you dwell therein, except Caleb and Joshua. But your little ones, whom ye said should be a prey, them will I bring in, and they shall know the land which ye have despised. But as for you, your carcasses, they shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall wander in the wilderness forty years, and bear your harlotries until your carcasses be wasted in the wilderness. After the number of the days in which ye search the land, even forty days, each day for a year, shall ye bear your iniquities even forty years, and ye shall know my breach of promise. I, the Lord, have said, 
I will surely do it unto all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall be consumed, and there they shall die. That's the setting of this psalm. Because as you read Psalm 90, you discover the Jewish people have been judged. You see, Psalm 90 is not talking about every human being that ever lived. Psalm 90, in one sense, is not even talking about you and me as believers. Psalm 90 initially is talking about the nation of Israel. And God says, you're going to wander for 40 years. You're just going to waste 40 years, 40 years. The longest funeral march in history. And every day, hundreds of people are going to die. Oh, you said we don't want our teenagers and our children to be eaten up in that land. They're the ones that are going to go in the land. God wiped out an entire generation. He took the younger generation and built a new nation. That's the meaning of this. You see, verse 12, teach us to number our days. They could number their days. If you were 20 years old, you'd know you'd be dead by 60. Had 40 years. If you're 30 years old, you'd be dead by 70. If you're 40 years old, you'd be dead by 80. They could number their days. They would know that every day a certain number would die. That's why they say in verse 7, we're consumed by thine anger, and by thy wrath are we troubled. Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. All our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told. Who knoweth the power of thine anger? They did. It's an awful thing for a whole generation to wander around and waste 40 years. That's what this is all about. And so Moses, the man of God, is praying. And he's saying, oh, God, we're getting exactly what we deserve. We were so worried about our children. He prays about the children there in verse 16. He says, show your glory to our children. He said, we're going to spend all this time wandering, wasting time, wasting energy. All we're going to have to show is a bunch of graves on the road. Oh, God, we don't want to waste our lives. Oh, God, when we come to the place where we have to die, we want to have something to show for it. That's what he's talking about. Initially. The basic interpretation of this psalm has to do with the 40 years of wandering of Israel in the wilderness. So the psalm is saying this to me and to you. If you and I do not believe God and obey God, we waste our lives. You've got to make a choice and I've got to make a choice. Is my life going to be part of a funeral procession? Am I just going to wander through life and live and die? Or is my life going to become a part of something great and dynamic? Paul says, thanks be unto God who always leads us in triumph. You've got to make that decision. I know Christians who are living in Psalm 90. They haven't trusted the Lord to guide them to lead them. They haven't obeyed the Lord. They're living carnal lives. And you know what's happening? They're just wandering in the wilderness. 
and someday they'll die, and they'll have nothing to show for it. That's the basic setting of this psalm. Now let's look at the meaning of the psalm as far as you and I are concerned tonight. The psalm divides itself into three sections. Now these three sections deal with the three basic problems everybody has to solve. Nobody can escape these three problems. Verses 1 through 6, the problem of man's frailty as against God's eternity. In verses 1 through 6, there's a contrast between the eternal God and frail man. Here is the eternity of God. God is our dwelling place in all generations. You see, God was watching one generation die and another generation come along. But God knows no generations. He's the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob and of Joseph and of their children and of their children's children. And God never has any birthdays. And God never winds a watch. And God never keeps a calendar. God is eternal. It says so. Verse 2. He was there before creation because he created everything. Even from everlasting to everlasting thou art God. The Hebrew word there is eternity. Even from eternity past to eternity future thou art God. Now here's the great eternal God who was before all generations and before all creation, who is eternal, no beginning, no ending, and over against that kind of a God, we have man, man who is frail, man whose life is just like a watch in the night, man in verse 5 whose life is carried away like a rainstorm. Friday afternoon, you saw that storm move in. A mile away from where I live, it took the roof off of a restaurant. Now, God is saying here, man is just like a, an Arab living in a tent. And a rainstorm comes, and the flood comes down, and just wipes away the tent. That's the way life is. You're living in a tent. Your body is just a tabernacle, a tent. And life is short. Here's the great eternal God who made the mountains, and here is frail man who can't even stand a rainstorm. They're like a sleep. That word sleep means a dream. It's gone just like that. Man is just like grass. You see, out in the country that Moses was in, the rain comes down and the grass just sprouts right up. But then by evening, they've mowed the grass down and it's dead. They've used it for fuel in the fire. Frail man in contrast to eternal God. Now get this. Why live? If I'm just a creature of dust and my days are numbered and he's the great eternal God, why live? Have you answered that question yet? Some people say, well, don't bother to live at all. Life is just absurd. There's no God out there anyway. Just eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow we die. You've got to solve that problem, my friend. There is an eternal God. Man is made for eternity. What are you going to do about it? That's where Jesus Christ comes in. Jesus Christ stepped out of eternity into time. 
Jesus Christ wedded man and God. Jesus Christ wedded and united forever dust and deity. Now, when you've given your heart to Jesus Christ, the problem of eternity is no problem anymore because the minute you give your heart to Jesus Christ, you become a part of eternity. That's an amazing thing, that you and I can share in eternal life. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. The unsaved person is a part of time. But when you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, eternity moves in, which means much more than living forever. My friend, everybody's going to live forever, either with God or apart from God, either in heaven or in hell, either in blessing or in judgment. Everybody's going to live forever. The question is, what kind of a life are you going to have forever? The unsaved person is going to have death forever. Because hell is the lake of fire, which is the second death. But heaven is that great city of glory, which is abundant, eternal, glorious life. And it starts now. The second problem we've got to solve is in verses 7 through 11. Here you have the contrast between God's holiness and man's sin. Not only is God an eternal God, but God's a holy God. And as a holy God, he has to do something about sin. And five times in these verses, you find anger, wrath, wrath, anger, wrath, fear. Now, most people in Chicago have solved this problem very simply. They have done away with sin. We had an interesting thing happen in the state of Ohio a few years ago. Big headlines came out that said, delinquency rate drops 30% in Ohio. That's marvelous. You know how they did it? They redefined what a delinquent was. See, we could do away with crime in Chicago, just redefine what a criminal is. That's all. We could do away with pollution in Chicago, just redefine it. That's what people have done. They said, well, there is no such thing as sin. Don't worry about a judgment. If there is a God, after all, he's sort of a, an understanding person. And lo and behold, one of our top psychiatrists now comes out with a book called Whatever Happened to Sin? Not from a preacher, from a psychiatrist. Well, you've got to solve this problem of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. And once again, how do you solve that problem? It's Jesus Christ. Not only did Jesus Christ step out of eternity and come into time that he might bring me into eternity, but Jesus Christ stooped so low as to take my sin on his body, on the cross, so that one day I might be able to trust him and receive his righteousness. Verse 9 pictures to me, the awful condition of the unsaved person, for all our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told. It's an awful way to live. You don't want to spend your years. You want to invest your years. And the only way to do that, of course, is to come as a sinner and receive the Savior and start living for him. The third problem is in verses um, 
12 through 17. Here in verses 12 through 17, you have man's yearning and God's blessing. You see, not only is man locked into time and God is eternal, not only is man sinful and God is holy, but what God does lasts forever. What man does doesn't last. And here in verses 12 through 17, Moses is saying, Oh God, what's the sense of working? What's the sense of living? What's the sense of doing anything? We're gone. Oh God, you're the eternal God. What you do is eternal. What you do stands forever. Oh Lord, establish thou the work of our hands. We're having an interesting thing happen here in the city of Chicago. They're tearing down the landmarks. Have you noticed that? Now, maybe progress is important. I don't know. But uh, it kind of hurts you to see some of these beautiful, great buildings that were designed by Frank Lloyd Wright and other people just torn down. But did you ever notice that just about everything we do is torn down? I have written books that have never been reprinted. They came out and they're gone now. People have written songs. I've preached sermons. There are things that we've done. We've built and then it's gone. And the heart of man cries out for some kind of fulfillment, for some kind of permanence. Now, the unsaved man doesn't know how to solve this problem. He says, here's Albert Einstein, a brilliant man. He's dead. It's too bad we couldn't have taken his brain and given his brain to somebody else to keep on using it. But now he's gone. Great philosophers and great writers and great musicians and great scientists and just everyday people, they're gone. And so in the last section here, 12 through 17, man is crying out for permanence. Man is saying, oh God, whatever I do is so temporary. And the answer once again is Jesus Christ. Because what you do for Jesus Christ is not temporary, it's permanent. He that doeth the will of God abideth forever. I was doing some research this past week on D.L. Moody and um, just could not help but be impressed with the fact that here is a man who has been gone since 1899 and yet he's still preaching, he's still writing, he's still winning souls, he didn't have even a fifth grade education, and yet he's serving God today, though he has been at home for 76 years. How do you do this? Well, the motto of his life, the verse that's on his gravestone, he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. I want you to know, my friend, that the most successful person in this world, apart from Jesus Christ, whatever he does, is not going to last. But the weakest Christian who is seeking to serve God, who is doing the will of God, what he does is going to last. Someday we'll face it in glory. Someday we'll stand before him and things we've forgotten about, he's going to open the books and bring them out and say, do you remember this? No, I don't. Well, this is what happened. I was preaching somewhere recently, and I can't even remember where it was, which shows how old I'm getting. 
And a young man came up to me and said, do you remember preaching at a youth rally in Akron, Ohio, X number of years ago? I said, no, sir, I don't. I don't remember that. He said, well, you did. He said, that night my life was completely transformed and now I'm serving God in the ministry. I may have gone home from that meeting saying, what a waste of time. Nothing happened tonight, but God did do something to somebody's life. That's a wonderful way to live. Tomorrow, as you go to your office or your school or wherever you have to be, to know that you just aren't spending your life, you're investing your life. It's going to be permanent. It's going to last. When the fire comes and tests our works, if we've been building with gold and silver and precious stones, they'll last. But if we've been building with wood and hay and stubble and worldliness and carnality and selfishness and pride, it'll burn up. So the answer to all three of these questions is Jesus Christ. God is eternal. Man is so temporary and frail. Ah, but in Jesus Christ you have eternal life. Man is sinful and God is holy, but in Jesus Christ you have salvation and forgiveness. Man's work is so passing and God is so permanent. Ah, but in Jesus Christ, he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. That's what he's saying here, which leads us now in conclusion to the living of this psalm. How in the world can you and I put this into practice? Well, verse 12, God's wisdom. Verse 14, God's mercy. Verse 16, God's work. Verse 16, God's glory. Verse 17, God's beauty. You see, the whole thing is God. Let me just quickly spell this out for you. Verse 12. Now, Lord, inasmuch as life is so brief, and I am so frail, and I'm so prone to sin, inasmuch as you are eternal, and I'm so temporal, Lord, teach me to number my days that I may apply my heart unto wisdom. That's the first step in living this psalm, numbering our days. Now, I can't number my days the same way they could. You know, here's Moses, and he says, in 40 years, you're all going to be buried. And some man turns to his wife and says, well, dear... I'm 35 years old, that means I'll die at 75 or before. Now, God didn't guarantee any of them 40 years. He just said that's the terminus point. You don't know how long you're going to live. We don't count our days. We count our years, and some of you have stopped doing that. You're 39 and holding. Moses doesn't say, Lord, teach us to number our years. He says, number our days. Nobody does this. If I come to you and say, how old are you? Well, I'm so many hundred days. No, nobody does this. We count our years. But we don't live by years. We live by days. And the first step in putting this psalm into practice is to start living a day at a time. Not a year at a time. Nothing wrong with plans. I carry in my pocket a six-year planner. Some of my plans God has unplanned, but you've got to know where you're going and what you're going to do the best you can. But you number your days and you live a day at a time by the wisdom of God. 
Now, wisdom is the right use of knowledge. Knowledge takes things apart. Wisdom puts them together. And we talked this morning about this wisdom that comes from the Word of God and the Spirit of God. So here's the first step in living this psalm. Start living a day at a time by the wisdom of God. Now, you have heard me say this so many times. I think it becomes boring. But if I'm going to be a faithful minister of Jesus Christ, I've got to say it again. Start each day in the Word of God, talking to the Lord and letting Him talk to you, and you'll get His wisdom. The reason Christians wander away in the wilderness and they miss God's best for their lives is simply because they don't spend time getting wise. The first step is live a day at a time by the wisdom of God. Verse 14, get your satisfaction from God. Now, the trouble with these Jews was they always wanted to go back to Egypt. Remember that? Every time there was some difficulty, let's go back to Egypt. Oh, when we were in Egypt, we had leeks and onions and garlic. That would keep me from going there, quite frankly. When we were in Egypt, we had everything we wanted. Oh, we were slaves, but it was worth it to be a slave because we ate and out here in this wilderness. Did you ever notice whenever things go rough for a carnal Christian, he always wants to go back to the world? Always wants to go back to the old life. Here's the second step now. Step one, live a day at a time by God's wisdom. Step two, look to God for your satisfaction. If you're looking to this world for satisfaction, you'll never find it. You'll just never find it. Oh, satisfy us. And notice that adverb there, early. Let me say a word to our young people here tonight. I'm always grateful for the young people who come to Moody Church morning, evening, and Wednesday night. You can't start too soon to learn to get your satisfaction from God. Don't waste your life. Start early getting your satisfaction from God. If it doesn't satisfy you from God, you don't want it. That applies to us as adults as well. Which leads us to verse 15. You not only get your satisfaction from God, but you get your joy from God. Make us glad. Tell me what makes you weep and what makes you rejoice, and I'll tell you what you are. The thing that makes a person weep and the thing that makes a person rejoice tells what a person is. Get your joy from God. Now, verse 15 is a marvelous verse. I'll not expound it in detail, but notice what he's saying here. He's saying that there's a law of compensation in this world. Moses is saying, oh God, make us glad according to the days wherein thou hast afflicted us and the years wherein we have seen evil. He said, we're going through all this trouble. It's not my fault, Lord. I wanted them to go in. It's not Joshua's fault. It's not Caleb's fault. You know, sometimes as we walk through this life, we suffer because of other people. There are wives that come to the Moody Church who suffer because of their husbands and vice versa. There are parents who suffer because of children and children who suffer because of the stupid mistakes of parents. What kind of a God do we have that forces Moses and Joshua and Caleb to wander for 40 years because of the people's unbelief? 
Oh, but God says, I'll compensate for that. There is in this world a law of compensation. That's what he's talking about here in verse 15. And if God does not compensate you in this life, he'll compensate you in the next life. That's what Paul meant when he said, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. The songwriter meant this when he said it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. So we live a day at a time. We seek our satisfaction from God. We seek our joy from God. Verse 16, we do God's work for God's glory. I had a letter this past week from a radio listener who listens to the Moody Church Hour over WKES down in St. Petersburg, Florida. We get a lot of mail from Moody Church Hour listeners. He said, Pastor Wersby, I'm in the real estate business, and this is my ministry. And the verses he had on his letterhead were rather interesting. They all applied to real estate from the Bible. He said, would you someday preach a sermon to tell people that they don't have to be preachers and missionaries and church visitors to serve God? That if God calls you to be a real estate man, that's your ministry. If God calls you to be a mechanic, that's your ministry. And I'm going to write him back and say, sir, I agree with you a million percent. We do need more missionaries and preachers and evangelists, but not everybody's called to that kind of work. But everybody's called to do God's work for God's glory. That's the beautiful thing about being a Christian. You're typing your typewriter and you're writing those letters to the glory of God. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Or you're, you're fixing those glasses or you're driving that truck or you're teaching your class or whatever you're doing in the will of God. You're serving him. That's the beautiful thing about being a Christian. Now that gives life an altogether different atmosphere. When you go off to your truck or your machine or your office or your nurse's station or whatever it is you're doing, you're not working for men, you're serving God. And what you're doing, you're not doing for time, you're doing for eternity. And why are you doing it? Not for a better job, but for the glory of God. Which leads to verse 17. We have the wisdom of God and the satisfaction of God and the joy of God and the work of God for the glory of God. But verse 17 just caps the whole thing off. Let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about building character. He is saying, while we are going through this wilderness wandering, oh God, let your beauty be upon us. Even though we have missed your best for our lives, we want your beauty to be upon us. Now, you and I are not in a wilderness wandering. I hope you aren't. I hope there's no one here tonight who's a believer who has turned his back on the will of God and is wandering. If you are, you come back. As you and I are walking through this world serving the Lord, we build character. I, I said on a sermon some weeks ago, and somebody questioned me about it, but I believe it. The one thing you're going to take to heaven you, you've got right now is character. You're building character. You'll get a different body. But the real you that you're building, you'll take that to heaven with you. 
and you'll be rewarded according to the kind of character we've built and the work that we've done. To me, it's a marvelous thing just to look at life, not as a funeral march, but a triumphal procession following our triumphant Savior and walking in His wisdom and being satisfied with His mercy and being glad with His blessing and letting His work be done for His glory and all the while His beauty coming upon us. Now, I'm going to make one more statement about Psalm 90 and then we'll pray and sing. Psalm 90 obviously leads into Psalm 91. We won't do it tonight, but you do it sometime. You put Psalm 90 right next door to Psalm 91 and you'll see that Psalm 91 is just the opposite of Psalm 90. Psalm 90 begins, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Psalm 91 says, he that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Psalm 90 talks about fear, fear. Psalm 91 says, you'll never be afraid. Psalm 90 talks about going down to dust. Psalm 91 says, I'll lift him on high. Psalm 90 says, oh, satisfy us. Psalm 91 says, he shall be satisfied. Psalm 91 is the fulfillment of Psalm 90. Now, if you're living in Psalm 90, oh, move into Psalm 91. Psalm 91 says, just let God be your dwelling place. Abide in him. And life won't be a funeral march. Life won't be a terrible burden, an awful drag. Life will be the fulfilling of the will of God and the doing of the work of God and the enjoying of the blessing of God and the reflection of the beauty of God. That's what Moses prayed for. That's what you and I should pray for. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, oh, my dear friend, trust him tonight. Because one day you will meet this eternal God who sees the secret sins of your life. It'll be too late. But tonight you can come and meet Jesus Christ and move into eternity and move into forgiveness and move into a life that lasts. Jim Elliot was certainly right, wasn't he? when he said, he is no fool to give what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Gracious Father, thank you for Jesus Christ, our Savior, who has made life so meaningful, so full, so enjoyable, who has turned life into a marvelous investment for eternity, Oh, God, who are we? Who are we, frail, sinful, temporal creatures? Who are we that we should become a part of eternity? That the eternal God should be our home, our dwelling place. I pray, Lord, that this word might be applied to all of our hearts. For that discouraged Christian, oh, God, encourage that heart. For that backslidden Christian, oh God, restore that heart. 
for that unsaved friend. O Lord, save that heart and accomplish your will tonight for Jesus' sake. Amen.